Good morning, Chapel Hill. It's good to be with you. Welcome to worship. I'm glad you made this a priority. The the Sabbath began with you in the house of the Lord. Thank you for doing that. If you're visiting with us for the first time, I'm kind of sorry for you because you've been missing out on a really wonderful journey through the book of Jonah. Even those who are kind of unchurched or irreligious have probably heard the story of Jonah. He was a reluctant prophet of the Lord. He was sent by God to go to preach to the wicked people of Nineveh. But as we know by now, he wanted nothing to do with that. In fact, he jumped on a boat and headed in the exact opposite direction, right? But God wasn't quite done with him. And so he stopped him with a great storm. He saved him with a great fish. He sent him to a great city. And he gave him a second chance. So he went. Reluctantly, he went and he preached the most half-hearted sermon that you've probably ever heard preached. Five words long, and essentially what he said is, God is going to wipe you turkeys out. That's what you got coming. Astoundingly, the people heard that message, took it as from the Lord, and they repented. They changed their evil ways. They began to seek after God in hope that he would relent from the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And even more amazingly... God did relent. He did relent from the disaster. Now, one would think that if God had used a person like Jonah to preach a great message of repentance that led to the salvation of 120,000 persons, that he might have been tickled about it. But not exactly. Last week, first verse of Jonah chapter 4, but it, it troubled Jonah, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angered. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. He didn't want the Ninevites to repent. They were awful people. They didn't deserve God's forgiveness. They didn't deserve to be able to repent. And he was ticked that God wasn't going to destroy him like he'd said he'd do in the first place. In fact, he's so ticked off that he throws a tantrum. And he says, I just want you to kill me. I don't even want to live anymore. I'm just, it, I don't want to stay alive if this is what I got to deal with. And God, in a wonderful expression of parental love, asks this penetrating question. He said, do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry, Jonah? In other words, are you really going to tell me how to do my job? Uh, you would have thought he would have dialed it down a notch or two. When God brings a question like that, he was a sharp boy, was Jonah, and he would have thought, he would have said, whew, I better back off, take a deep breath or ten, and, uh, and then re-engage the conversation with the Lord. But no, Jonah doubles down. He kicks and screams and throws even a bigger tantrum, as we will see today, as we finish off this wonderful journey through this wonderful little book. We turn to Jonah chapter um, chapter 4, starting with verse 5, and, uh, and listen now to the word of the Lord. Jonah went out of the city, and he sat to the east of the city, and, a, and made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade, till he should see what would become of the city. And the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, 
the Lord appointed, God appointed a worm to attack that plant and it, so that it began to wither. And when the sun rose, God appointed an east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left. And also, much cattle. This is the word of the Lord. So Jonah's not done with his pouting. He stomps out of town. He decides to run away again. This time he runs away from Nineveh. He stomps out of town towards a little hillock on the east side. He sits down after having built a little stone cabana. He ensconces himself there so that he can continue his pouting. But you'll notice he's not only pouting, he's also watching for something. What is it? He is watching, fingers crossed, hoping that God might change his mind about changing his mind. Right? He's hoping that he will relent about relenting. And that, in fact, he will bring out an apocalypse on this city, which does not deserve to be spared. And so he sits down there in his little box and watches, just in case. I've never been to a NASCAR event. Have any of you ever been to a NASCAR race? Okay, a few of you. There are not a lot of them around here, as it turns out, so you've got to go somewhere else. But I am told that one of the reasons that 80,000 people pack out Talladega Speedway is because some of them like to come and see the wrecks. That they actually, they endure the crowds and the noise and the sunshine and the warm and expensive beer in hopes that there might be a big old car wreck for them to watch. That's exactly what Jonah's doing here. He's hoping for Nineveh to crash and burn. Why is that? We can discern from the rest of the book that there might be a couple of reasons. First of all, he thinks that their repentance came too easy. And secondly, he thinks that it won't last. He thinks that their repentance came too easily. These wicked people had committed awful atrocities and they deserved judgment. And so the idea that they could just say, we're sorry, and have the slate wiped clean was outrageous to him. It was not enough. It was not fair. It was not right. They deserved judgment. And he was pretty convinced that a judgment that easily attained, I mean, that a, a confession, repentance that easily reached would be easily reversed. He thought they'd re, they would reoffend. That after the pressure was up, that they would go back to their same old evil ways again. I was watching a special on Ted Bundy this last week. 
I can tell that you remember Ted Bundy. We have the distinction of having him been born in Tacoma. And he admitted to uh, the deaths of as many, more than 30 women and girls. And he might have been responsible for as many as 50. Um, He was sentenced to die, and um, after having been in prison for a period of time, the eve of his execution came in 1989. He had an interview with Dr. Dobson, Dr. James Dobson, who came in and they filmed the interview. And in that interview, he said that he had committed his life to Christ in prison and that he had asked him to forgive him for the evil that he had done. Now, I wonder how you feel when you hear that. There's going to be some of you that say, isn't that wonderful that he was reconciled to God? Isn't it wonderful that he could be forgiven of all the awful things that he did? Isn't that wonderful? And there are going to be others of you who might say, yeah, I bet he gave his life to Christ. Another foxhole Christian. Another manipulation by a guy who was the king of manipulators. Um, I don't believe it for a second. Uh, It's probably just one more manipulation. And anyhow, he doesn't deserve forgiveness. He deserves to burn in hell for what he did to those girls and to their families. So if you struggle on what your response might be to that news, then you might understand how Jonah felt as he was sitting on that hill. He could have been delighted that God used his preaching to save more than 120,000 souls. He could have been, but he wasn't. Instead, he was mad that God used his preaching to save 120,000 souls. And he is sitting in the bleachers hoping that God will change his mind in a destructively, spectacularly destructive way. And while he's there pouting, God tries one more time to engage with Jonah. And he does it through a, a parable, a plant parable. You're taking a look right now at a picture of the plant that's growing in the front yard of my next-door neighbor. Um, the husband doesn't even know what, he, what it is, and he doesn't like it very much. But the wife loves it, and that settles it. Amen, men? <laughs> that's just the way it goes. But it, it really it looms over the, the, the front yard and with these, like, elephant ear-type leaves. And I imagine, when I read the story of Jonah, that it was something like this that God gifted Jonah with. The area around Nineveh is very bleak, treeless, no vegetation. So it's likely that the cabana that he built was really made out of rock and had no roof over the top of it. And so it seems like a real sweet thing that the Lord would miraculously appoint this plant to grow up and provide some shade for Jonah. And For the first time, we see a smile on Jonah's face, right? For the first time in the whole story. And so, Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant, we are told. If so, his gladness did not last very long. Because right after that, God appointed a worm to attack that plant so that it withered away and destroyed his shade. And to add insult to injury, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun was beating down on him and the wind was blowing into his face. And we sense that, that Jonah was on the verge of heat stroke. And he goes in two verses from being exceedingly glad to being suicidal again. It didn't last long, this gladness. 
It's better for me to die than to live, he says, as he said before. And God's reply is almost exactly the same with three extra little words. He said, do you do well to be angry for the plant? That's the new twist on God's question to him. And Jonah's reply is so whiny that it made me laugh out loud the first time I was reading it again this week. He said, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. It's the first time that Jonah's really talked back to God in the whole story. He kind of is a passive-aggressive disobedient person. But this is the first time. Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. What part of that don't you understand? Why is God doing this? It almost seems cruel. God gives him a shade just to the point where he's enjoying and finally luxuriating a little late, a little bit in the coolness of that big leaf. And then he takes it away. It's like he's being cruel, like a, a little kid who's burning up ants with a magnifying glass. God's sitting up there doing that. But this is a parable. God is giving Jonah a parable. The plant is a parable. And here's God's punchline. He says, you care more about this plant And really, at the heart of it, you care more about the comfort which this plant provides to you than you do for the 120,000 souls that are going to die in Nineveh. He said, you have pity for a plant. You have pity for yourself. I pity people, lost people. If you've ever wondered where the expression, your right hand not knowing where your left hand, what your left hand is doing, that's where it comes from. Did you know that? This is the book of Jonah. And God used that expression to talk about the, the spiritual confusion of these Ninevite people. They don't know where they're right, what their right hand from their left hand. They're completely confused, he says. God pities them in their spiritual confusion, and Jonah despises them. So much so that he would rather die than deal with a God who is so foolishly merciful towards a people who do not deserve that mercy. God uses this parable to try to open Jonah's eyes. And frankly, to to bring a little bit of shame upon him for his lack of compassion for these people. So did it work? We don't know. We don't know if it worked. Why? Because it is the most abrupt ending to a Bible book you will ever find. The last line says... And should not I have pity on Nineveh, that great city in which more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. (laughs) And you see, that's the end of your story? You turn the page to see if there's a, a bit longer piece of paragraph. and There is no lower paragraph. That is the end of the story. And also much cattle, the end. <laughs> Go to sleep. It is the most unsatisfying, abrupt cliffhanger in the Bible. It competes with the Gospel of Mark, by the way, if you want to be reminded of that. We have no idea how Jonah responds to God's parable. Are his eyes open? Does he suddenly see things as God sees them? Does he say, oh my goodness, I realize now how self-centered I have been, how, how concerned I have been for my own comfort, and to be right 
and not wrong. I see that now, Lord, and how you have compassion on these 120,000 souls. Of course I repent. I'm so sorry. Now I see it your way. It might have happened that way. It might have ended that way. Or it might have been something like this. I don't care about your stinking plant. These people are awful. I don't believe their cheap repentance. It costs them nothing compared to the pain that they have caused. And it only happened because they're trying to save their own skins. They only repented because they are going to die. It's never going to last. You wait. When When the pressure is lifted, when the threat is gone, they will revert to their old ways. That might also have been the way that the story ended. But it doesn't tell us. And so we are left dangling, hanging, wondering how Jonah will reply to God's parable of mercy. It is unsatisfying, unsettling, inconclusive end to the story. And also much cattle. (laughs) Here's what makes it even more confusing. Jonah was right. Jonah was dead right about the the Ninevites. He probably preached this sermon around 750 B.C. If that's so, about 28 years later, the Assyrians, that's these people of whom Nineveh was one of their great cities, the Assyrians invaded Israel and destroyed the ten northern tribes. Jonah's people. They wiped them out. You've heard of the ten lost tribes of Israel, right? They weren't lost. They were annihilated. And it was these people, these Assyrians, these Ninevites who did the annihilating. One generation later, 30 years later, they repented of their, after they repented of their evil ways, they returned to their evil ways and wiped out the very kingdom Jonah called his home. So Jonah was right. Here's what makes it even more interesting. I'm fascinated by this. The book of Jonah was included in Scripture after the Assyrians wiped out the people of Israel. Think about that. When the ancient scribes pulled together the canon, all of the books that form what we know to be the Old Testament... They already knew the outcome of the story because it occurred a couple of hundred years later. They knew that the Ninevites' repentance did not last. They knew that they were responsible for the greatest catastrophe in the history of the Israelite people. And yet the scribes of the Old Testament still included the book of Jonah in our Bible anyhow. Isn't that interesting to you? And you say, why? Why, when they knew God's mercy was wasted on the Ninevites, why, if they knew that they threw God's grace right back into his face, why would you include this story in your collection of what would be your holy scripture? Because it says something about the grace and mercy of God. It says something about his nature, about his long-suffering compassion. That he would take such a risk on such unworthy people. It was worth God's reputation to do that. It's why we have called this series Reckless Love. 
Because God's mercy can seem reckless and extravagant. Because it can be, it seem wasteful to pour out such mercy on such undeserving people. And yet God's love, his grace, his mercy is so extravagant that he is willing to take the risk. It is worth it to him. He won't give up. And did you notice God didn't give up on Jonah either? This story is as much about God's patience with Jonah as it is a God's patience with the Ninevites. Now we know that God is in control of the situation. One word particularly appears again and again that reminds us of his sovereign oversight of this whole process. That word is appoint. We are told that God appointed a great fish. God appointed a plant. God appointed a worm. God appointed a scorching east wind. All of these were under God's control, under his sovereign control for his purpose of saving Jonah, of changing Jonah's heart. God would have had a lot less hassle if he had just said, to hell with you, Jonah. I'm going to start over with a decent prophet. But he appoints a fish and a plant and a worm and a wind. And he asks question after question after patient question. All for the purpose of drawing Jonah into his heart. All for the purpose of helping Jonah to see the lost world through the eyes of a loving creator. Who would do anything to save them. Because he pitied them. And that word, pity, it doesn't do it justice in the English. Do you know the actual translation of that word? I pity Nineveh, that great city. The actual word for pity is translated to take action with tears streaming down your face. God was taking upon himself the sin and the rebellion of the Ninevites, the pain that the Ninevites had caused. He took it upon himself. He couldn't wait for them to take action. To turn to him, he took action. He reached out, tears coursing down his divine cheeks that he might save these pathetic souls who did not know their right hand from their left. And that it was only the start. 700 years later, God comes to earth in the form of Jesus. He stood on the Mount of Olives looking out over Jerusalem. And do you remember what he did? He wept. One of two times Jesus wept. Once for his friend Lazarus and then over his lost city Jerusalem. He wept, he said, because you did not believe me. Here is the salvation, he said, even greater than Jonah brought, and you did not receive it. And still he took the action. Still he went to the cross and poured out, lavish, extravagantly poured out his lifeblood to save some, to save one. The apostle Peter wrote about this this instinct of God, this extravagant and patient instinct of God later on when he wrote these words, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The punchline of Jonah is that God wants to save people who do not deserve saving. And he wants to use us to accomplish that work of salvation. Even jerks like Jonah. Even jerks like you and me. And we need to decide whether we will pout and lament the discomfort that this causes us. 
or whether we will finally soften our hearts so that we might pity the lost in the way that God pities the lost. So did Jonah ever soften? Did he ever repent of his selfish ways? The book doesn't tell us, of course, but I, I actually think that there is a clue that maybe he did. And it, it's a historical clue that I shared with you last week. Do you remember it? Here's the picture of it. What is this? Jonah's tomb. Jonah's tomb in Mosul, Iraq, which sits on ancient Nineveh. In other words, if this tradition is true, Jonah was buried in Nineveh. Now think about that. The only way Jonah would be buried in Nineveh is if he stayed in Nineveh. Right? Why didn't he run away back to his own country as soon as he was done with the assignment that God had forced upon him? Then he would have died in his own land. Maybe God's parable changed Jonah's mind. Maybe Jonah repented. Maybe Jonah saw his own selfishness. Maybe Jonah came to love the people that he had once hated. How else can you explain the fact that he chose to remain in that city until he breathed his last? Pure speculation. But I cling to that little hope. Jesus liked Jonah. Jesus quoted Jonah. Jesus thought Jonah was a good prophet. So if Jesus liked him, I kind of want to like him too. I want to believe that this petulant fellow finally had a change of heart, that he came to see the lost Ninevites with the compassion that God saw them, that he came to love them. And I believe that the book ends in this infuriating way as a cliffhanger to pose an open question to every one of us. Will we, as individuals, as a church, will we have that same compassionate, reckless, tear-stained love for the lost people around us? I think this is an enormously important question that we must grapple with as a church. Not just that we love each other, but even more that we love those who are lost and not not part of who we are. Let's pray. Lord, I think of the email that I got from one of our members this week. Thank you so much for portraying Jonah in the terms that you did. He was such a jerk, and it gives me hope that God can use a jerk like me. Indeed. Forgive us for our hubris. Forgive us for wanting our own comfort, our version of a plant in the right place for us, more than caring about those souls that we see every day and don't pay attention to. Lord, may this church become that kind of a church that We've got a collective head on our swivel. We are looking for those that you love and do not yet know you. And that every effort expended is never wasteful, never too lavish, never too reckless, because that's the kind of God you are.